Hey everybody, welcome to Come Follow Me Daily Dose. I'm Lindsay Hansen, and today is August 9th. Today is the first day in this week's Come Follow Me block, and this week we're going to be studying Alma chapters 53 through 63. So this week, before we really jump in and dive into the doctrine, I had to share a story that just made me laugh. My husband used to work for a nonprofit organization that provided field trips for elementary age kids. And one day after a field trip, he received a thank you card from a class. And one kid who he had particularly worked with made him a card where she had drawn a picture of him. Now, keep in mind, this girl was probably about 10 years old. She drew a picture of him. He had a little bit of a mullet in the picture. And on top, it said my husband's name. And then underneath it said, real man. (laughs) And we have joked and laughed about that ever since. It just cracked us up. Real man. Because in her mind, in her 10-year-old mind, that was like the best compliment you could give a guy. I'm going to call you a real man. And that was like the ultimate compliment from this girl. Now, it made me laugh and it made me think of it today as I read verse 2 of chapter 53. Here in this verse, Mormon is giving us a little bit of history, telling us a little bit of what's happening. And in verse two, he's going to describe Lehi, who is one of Moroni's friends, colleagues, confidants, etc. He says this, And Moroni went to the city of Mulek with Lehi, and took command of the city, and gave it unto Lehi. Now behold, this Lehi was a man who had been with Moroni in the more part of all his battles, and he was a man like unto Moroni. Now, the reason that made me laugh is because truly, I'm sure for Mormon to call Lehi a man like unto Moroni was the highest compliment he could think of. That was about as good as it got. Mormon had described Moroni in earlier chapters, and we talked about it and the strong, courageous, loyal, and obedient man that he was. And here in this verse, Moroni describes Lehi by saying, you know what? He is like unto Moroni. He's every bit as good. He's a real man. Best compliment he could think of, right? Just like that 10-year-old girl. Best compliment she could give my husband. Real man. Not that that is life-changing or anything, but it made me laugh today. So let's jump into some meatier things. In verse 8, it tells us the condition of some of the cities. It says, And now it came to pass that the armies of the Lamanites on the West Sea, south, While in the absence of Moroni, on account of some intrigue amongst the Nephites, which caused dissensions among them, had gained some ground over the Nephites, yea, insomuch that they had obtained possession of a number of their cities in that part of the land. And because of iniquity amongst themselves, yea, because of dissensions and intrigue among themselves, they were placed into the most dangerous circumstances. So here he's explaining that because the Nephites had dissensions among themselves, intrigue, and iniquity among themselves, it caused that they should lose parts of their land. It caused that the Lamanites could come in and take over their lands, and it put them in a very dangerous situation. Now, the thing that I love about this verse is oftentimes, especially in the war chapters, we think of the biggest problem for the Nephites was the Lamanites. But let's take a look at something that Nephi taught in 1 Nephi. In chapter 2, verse 24, the Lord is speaking to Nephi. He's talking about Nephi's descendants, the Nephites, and then he's also talking about the Lamanites. So it gets a little confusing because he says they both times for the Nephites and the Lamanites. It says, And if it so be that they, meaning the Nephites, rebel against me, they, meaning the Lamanites, shall be a scourge unto thy seed, 
to stir them up into the ways of remembrance. So in that sense, the Lamanites were actually a blessing to the Nephites. The Lamanites were a tool that was used to help the Nephites continually remember the Lord. And when they forgot the Lord, when they began to dissent, when they began to sin, when they began to stray away, the Lord used the Lamanites to stir them up to remembrance. So in that sense, it was not the Lamanites that was the Nephites' biggest enemy. The Lamanites weren't their biggest danger. Their biggest danger was the natural man. Their biggest danger came from themselves, forgetting the Lord, forgetting to obey, and not following the commandments of God. And here we see that in chapter 53. We see that as soon as the Nephites were forgetting, as they were dissenting, as they were not choosing the right, we see that it was then that the Lord allowed the Lamanites to come into their cities and to begin to take them over one by one. Now, that's hard because a lot of people have a hard time believing in God or wanting to believe in God because they say, well, God lets bad things happen. Well, no, God didn't make the Lamanites take over the cities of the Nephites. He didn't make the Lamanites kill the Nephites. He allowed the Lamanites to exercise their agency, and he used that experience to stir the Nephites up into remembrance. He didn't cause it to happen. He didn't make the Lamanites fierce and angry and take over the Nephites. He allowed them to use their agency, and then he used that experience to bless the Nephites. And now in this chapter, we come to the people of Ammon. Remember, the people of Ammon were the people who had buried their weapons of war. They had buried their swords and made a covenant to never shed the blood of man again. They had been living amongst the Nephites, and the Nephites had been offering that protection. But when they saw that the Lamanites were coming against the Nephites, and as they were killing them, it says that they were moved with compassion and were desirous to take up arms in the defense of their country. They weren't apathetic against everything that was happening. They were moved to compassion and they desired to pick up their swords. But Helaman wouldn't allow that to happen. Then in verse 16, it says, But behold, it came to pass that they had many sons who had not entered into a covenant that they would not take their weapons of war to defend themselves against their enemies. Therefore, they did assemble themselves together at this time, as many as were able to take up arms, and they called themselves Nephites. And they entered into a covenant to fight for the liberty of the Nephites, Yea, to protect the land unto the laying down of their lives. Yea, even they covenanted that they never would give up their liberty, but they would fight in all cases to protect the Nephites and themselves from bondage. And they were all young men, and they were exceedingly valiant for courage, and also for strength and activity. But behold, this was not all. They were men who were true at all times in whatsoever thing they were entrusted. Yea, they were men of truth and soberness. For they had been taught to keep the commandments of God and to walk uprightly before him. Now, these were young men. We don't know their age. We don't know their stature. We don't know their height. We don't know their strength. But what we do know is their faith. And we do know how important a covenant was to them. They didn't want to allow their fathers to break a covenant that they had made. And so, being young, they took a covenant upon themselves that they would defend their countries to allow their fathers to keep their own covenants. In 1952, President David O. McKay said, Fellow members of the priesthood, do you esteem your word? In all sincerity, I ask it tonight. You and I have given our words, our covenants. Do we hold them as sacred as did the people of Ammon, the story of whom you find in the Book of Mormon, who made an oath that they would never shed blood, 
And the time came when their benefactors were being punished, persecuted, killed, and the people of Ammon thought they would break that oath. But Helaman said no. And so those good men and women preferred death, if necessary, rather than break their word and violate their oath. You know the story of how 2,000 boys went out to sacrifice their lives if necessary, so that their parents would not violate that oath. That is a great story and an inspiration to young men in all the world. Now, the application. Do you realize that we made a promise? A covenant at the water's edge? You and I are pretty well along, in years, some of you, but we remember our baptism on our eighth birthday. There was a sense that came to us that we would not swear after that baptism, that we would do whatever our parents asked us to do, that we would do our part, or render service in the church when called upon to do it. We were only children at eight years of age, that is true, but I can remember those feelings and sentiments as clearly as though they were yesterday. Don't you? Later, we realized what that covenant is. We buried the old man with all of his weaknesses, his jealousies, his tendencies to slander, that we might come forth and walk in the newness of life. We refer to it now as the covenant made at the water's edge. You made it. You gave your word. Is your word your bond? I ask the church, and especially the men who hold the priesthood. We teach honor, truth, integrity, and square dealing. But to all this, we add sacredness of our word of honor. God, help us keep our covenants. My friends, I invite you all to ponder today, what are the covenants? What are the promises that you have made to our Father in heaven? And what are the sacrifices that we must make in order to fulfill those covenants? Just as the people of Ammon, our word has to be our bond. Our oaths and our covenants need to be at the forefront of our mind so that all that we do, all that we think, and all that we are honor those promises to our Father in heaven. Thank you so much for listening today. If you're enjoying this podcast, make sure to subscribe, to like, to comment, and to share. This has been Come Follow Me, Daily Dose, and I'm Lindsay Hansen.